Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. Hello, welcome to Save for Later, a podcast about internet culture and the tabs our brains can't close. I'm Michael Sun. And I'm Alex Gorman. Coming up, it's getting harder and harder to pay attention. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is than Facebook. Now imagine the next crack-like iteration of TikTok in the metaverse. But who stole our focus? We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds. And can we get it back? But first, Alex, welcome back to the podcast. How are you feeling? Thank you, Michael. I'm back after a long and storied struggle with COVID. I'm full of hope. I'm full of optimism. I'm full of cough syrup. I missed your takes. Alex, I'm so glad you're rejoining me at my favourite time of year. It is, of course, that time of year where brands strip down to their barest. It is International Pride Month. It is Pride Month in the US. But not just that, it is Brand Pride Month. And I'm seeing so many examples of just like bungled pinkwashing pride rainbow tweets from large corporations. Happy rainbow (laughs) everything to all who celebrate. They're just going so viral because they're almost always, not even necessarily just tone deaf, but just honestly bad and cringe. (laughs) And there's nothing we love more than when a brand posts cringe, specifically on Twitter. Like the most viral one I'd say this year is Burger King's Pride ad, which features two burgers. One burger has two bun tops and the other burger has two bun bottoms. Oh my God, I'm looking at it right now. And (laughs) like, does the person who made this ad understand what this means. Does a queer person work in the Burger King marketing division? Because if they did, they would not be releasing their tops and bottoms only burger. It's it's very strange. I'm I'm imagining just like some 65-year-old Austrian <laughs> marketing exec being like, yes, my son is a homosexual and I believe they talk about tops and bottoms. Burgers have those too. Let's show two of them together because homo means same. So many of these campaigns feel like they are fictional because they are so outlandishly bad. I mean, Alex, I know that you have a favourite couch. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, yes. Ikea's bisexual pride couch from last year, I think it was released by Ikea Canada, truly haunts my nightmares daily. 
it's not just the Ikea bisexual couch, but it's specifically the Ikea bisexual nobody believes you couch, um, <laughs> which is what it says in, like, giant, really ugly handwriting on, like, one of the big couch cushions on the back. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's, like, taken in totality, it's a message about, like, bi erasure. But if someone sat down just on one of the cushions, all it would say is, nobody believes you. <laughs> this couch is, like, truly one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life, and I really hope they do a second edition this year. Happy Pride. <laughs> um, happy Pride to the IKEA bisexual couch and no one else. Also happy Pride, Alex, to your own experience of working in social media for an unnamed large global search engine. I have a hunch that you wrote Pride marketing tools for this said corporation back in the day. Yes, it's true. I I am guilty of corporate prideteering myself. Uh, in fact, my crowning glory at my time writing tweets for this company was during the marriage equality plebiscite when trends showed that searches for the phrase marriage equality were spiking. And so with a graphic showing the spiking search trend, I wrote, marriage equality, it's what Australia is searching for. A really elegant tweet that I was very happy with. Unfortunately, when we published the tweet, a typo made it in. So in fact, what I wrote is marriage equality. <laughs> like the bird. Yeah, it's the slippery slope that marriage equality is going to lead to bestiality, Alex. Um, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, uh, <laughs> truly my greatest hate crime. I love that this like overall genre, though, of like corporation celebrating pride has become so deeply ingrained in popular culture that, like anything, it's now been the subject of a viral Twitter text trend. I feel like I can kind of trace the origins of this back to there was that one viral video of comedian Grace Kuhlenschmidt where she kind of like smiles with a thousand yard stare into the camera and she's like, I've struggled with my body my entire life and then like a beat and then it's like... That is why I am partnering with Amazon. <laughs> and there's like no explanation. But now people are taking this re like really in stride um, or in pride rather. And they're turning it into such iconic bangers as, and I quote, as a baby queer figuring it all out, I made doubtful aesthetic choices, struggled with reliability and even tended towards spontaneous explosion. That's why this Pride Month I'm partnering with Tesla. Oh, I love this Twitter trend so much. There's one that makes me feel <laughs> deeply personally attacked. Yes. As a bisexual woman in a relationship with a man, I'm despised by the straight and LGBT plus communities alike. That's why this Pride, I'm partnering with James Corden. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then maybe just one more for good measure. This is also one that, that I've seen making the rounds. As a sex-repulsed asexual, I hate it when people have sex. That's why this Pride Month I'm partnering with League of Legends. <laughs> <laughs> Which is truly a drag of so many communities. Yeah, shout out to all the wow widows in the audience as well. <laughs> so meanwhile on TikTok, also love this brand pride backlash trend. My favourite example of this is a TikTok of dubious origins, but I believe is a transformational work. She's twerking really incompetently. She's flicking her hair. Identity is so community. That's why it's authenticity to make proud. In no way shape. Saying that her exist is not for sale. And what's more pronouns than that? And what and is more pronouns than that? Be the change. 
it genuinely is an incredible parody of the way that not just brands, but I would say almost more insidiously, like actual queer influencers talk about their own identity when they package it up and monetize it for the purpose of brand pride. Um, It's almost like the most cursed example of pinkwashing. It's like the extremes of pinkwashing. You know, first you have the Mardi Gras gay TMs run by Gay and Zed on Oxford Street in Sydney. And then like two stops later, you have the queer influencer being like identity, so community. It's all interlinked. Yes, particularly in the US. The reason why the backlash against this is so reasonable and so like deeply felt is because quite often you'll see brands that will do a big pride push that are also funneling money into conservative causes or conservative politicians. So it is like the most brutal form of pinkwashing. There was also another very bad tweet that I saw from a guy called Elon Musk. Oh. He posted a very strange graphic, which is of a man who is doing like an Edward Munch scream towards the camera. And in the background, you can see like a whirlwind of rainbowed and yassified corporate logos. Like there's the rainbow Twitter logo and the rainbow Tumblr logo and the rainbow Reddit logo. And it says June is almost here. And it's almost like, it's one thing for, you know, like the good people, the citizens of Twitter to be making this kind of joke. I think it's a very different thing for Elon Musk to be turning this joke about pinkwashing into actual homophobia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd say say it kind of goes full circle. Like, you really can't reclaim anything if you're a straight white billionaire whose secret baby was once outed in a Vanity Fair interview. (laughs) Next, Michael, you've been carrying the load these last few weeks pulling so much weight, so I'm giving you a little break while I investigate how we can defeat the attention economy. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed... The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centred higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. So our guest this week is Johan Hari, and he's written a really interesting book about how late capitalism has essentially broken our minds. He has a controversial reputation that precedes him, involving plagiarism and cyberbullying incidents that were uncovered in 2011. 
He has apologised for his past extensively and put in place transparency practices around his reporting, including posting the audio files of his interviews online. But as you scroll through his new book, it's hard not to see yourself in it and to see the strings that have pulled us in a direction of constant distraction. That's what we're here to talk about today. Johan Hari, hello. Thank you so much. I know we're both like quite sick. So I think, I feel like one of us will probably die during this podcast. If I'm the one, just release it in my memory. That's all I ask. We do not think that you can spread whatever either of us have through auditory mediums, but hey, maybe we're super spreaders. (laughs) Let's kick off where your book kind of begins, which is in a way that many self-help books start with, a big revelatory reset. Tell me about Provincetown. You know, I could feel that my own attention was getting worse, right? It felt like with each year that passed, things that required deep focus, like reading a book, having proper long conversations, watching films, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I noticed this seemed to be happening to a huge number of people around me. You know, for every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now 100 children who've been identified with that problem. The average office worker now focuses on only one task for only three minutes. And the story I had in my head was I thought, well, it's obvious why this is happening. I'm just lacking in willpower. I would say to myself, you're not strong enough. What's wrong with you? And also, someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me over, right? Those are essentially the two stories I had in my head. Mm. So it seemed like the answer was kind of obvious. Use your willpower, get away from the phone. So I booked uh, a room in a beach house in a place called Provincetown at the tip of Cape Cod. And I went there for three months. Like you say, I had no smartphone. I had no laptop that could get online. And Provincetown is a completely amazing place. I got in trouble on an Australian podcast recently for, I was trying to explain what it's like. So it's a kind of gay beach resort town. And I said to the person, if you imagine um, Byron Bay with less surfing and more fisting, you've basically (laughs) got an image of Provincetown. It's the kind of place where there's more than one person who makes a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about cunnilingus. And the two rival Ursulas hate each other, right? <laughs> and my attention in Provincetown went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I could read for eight hours a day uh, without getting distracted. I could have really good, long, immersive conversations with people. I remember at the end of those three months going to, uh, there's a, a lighthouse at the edge of Provincetown, and looking out over this, this place where I had been for three months. I'd barely even been in a moving vehicle, Right. And thinking, God, why? I'm never going to go back to how I lived before. This has been amazing, right? Why would I ever go back to just checking my email every half an hour and being constantly texted? This is amazing. And the next day I got the ferry back to Boston. And within a couple of months, I was 80% back to where I'd been. And I was like, and again, I was really angry with myself. I was like, what's wrong with you? And I went to Moscow to interview a guy called Dr. James Williams. He had been at the heart of Google became appalled by what they were doing to people's attention. We can talk about that more and quit and became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. He's in Moscow because his wife works for the World Health Organization there. And he said to me, look, the fundamental mistake you've made, Joe, and he said, look, digital detoxes are fine. They give people relief. It's fine to try. It's good. But they're not the solution. He said, the mistake you've made, he said, is it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask. So that gas mask solution. That's what you were doing in Provincetown. And this same solution is being posited by the technology industry itself. And now it's part of the mainstream thinking in how we can cope with all the distractions around us. 
the tech industry want to transfer, the, and indeed the other forces that are harming our attention from the food industry to many of our employers and the way they make us work, they want the responsibility for this to lie on us. And, and the way I began to think of it is it's a bit like at the moment, someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, you know what, mate, um, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. <laughs> and you want to go, well, screw you, I'll learn to meditate. That's very valuable, but you need to stop pouring itching powder on me, right? If we focus solely on the individual solutions, um, I think that's problematic for several reasons, which is not an argument against the individual solutions. I'm passionately in favor of the individual solutions, right? They will really help people. They have really helped me. But there's a concept that was thought of by um, the historian, American historian of France, Lauren Berlant, who sadly died recently, really important concept called cruel optimism. Mm. Cruel optimism is where you take something with really big systemic causes like obesity, depression, attention problems, and you say to people, great news, I've got a solution for you. You've just got to do this one little thing every day and this problem is going to go away. Just use this meditation app for five minutes a day. You're, all your worries are going to go away, right? And of course, it sounds like optimism, right? You're saying, I've got a solution to your problem. But in fact, for most people, it will be cruel because the solution is not commensurate to the size of the problem mm. and it sets them up to fail. But when they fail, they'll think, well, there's something really wrong with me because I did the thing that you're meant to do to solve the problem and I still can't focus. Now, it's really important to stress the alternative to cruel optimism is not pessimism. The alternative to cruel optimism is authentic optimism. Authentic optimism is where you genuinely explain to people what's causing the problem and you build solutions that are as big as the problem and can overwhelm the problem, mm -hmm. which require both individual and collective action. And that sounds a bit fancy, but I went to places that were doing this from France to New Zealand, very practical ways we can do this. The kind of alternative to cruel optimism and the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, a term that was initially coined because it's physically impossible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, <laughs> and then people have started using it as a like, very literal command. Um, <laughs> The alternative that you posit is something that you're calling um, attention rebellion. And you've you've kind of given a few examples in the book, things like banning surveillance capitalism and instituting a four-day work week. Tell me a bit more about like a society reshaped by attention rebellion and unbreaking our brains. What would that look like? Well, I think the first thing is we've got to identify, the book is called Stolen Focus because our focus is being stolen from us by some really big forces from the food industry to, like I say, employers, right? At the moment, most people can feel there's something really wrong, right, with our attention. It can see what's happening to our children. We really don't like it. But I think we're either in the mode of blaming ourselves, thinking, oh God, there's something wrong with me, or there's something wrong with my child, or we're just in the, well, I guess that's just the way the world is. Technology changed, you know, and like you say, big tech very much want us to think of it that way. They want us to frame this debate as are you pro-tech or anti-tech, right? As if what, the people who are critical of the way things are, we, we're all saying we should all join the Amish, right? which is, of course we're not saying that, no disrespect to any Amish listeners who are cheating. Second, <laughs> so what we've got to do is deal with some of those causes. Now that can sound very fancy and big. So I want to give you a very practical example of a place that did this with one of the significant causes, right? So I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and interviewed a man named Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, look, you've got to understand one thing about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. 
that's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any timescale any of us are going to see. But what's happened is we've all been taught to fall for a kind of mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. Mm. So we're constantly juggling. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really significant cost. The technical term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You make more mistakes. You remember less of what you do. Um, you're much less creative. And that sounds like a small effect when you first hear about it. It's a really big effect. To give an example of a small study backed by a much wider body of evidence, Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workers and he split them into two groups. And the first group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, and uh, you're not going to be interrupted, right? Just, just do your task and, and you won't be interrupted. The second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, but at the same time, you're going to have to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live. Mm. And then they were monitored, and at the end of it, the scientists tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored, on average, 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. A lot of your book was written, as you say, like before the pandemic. Now that you've been sort of you've lived through the pandemic, you got COVID on the way home from the interview (laughs) in Moscow. Um, (laughs) What do you think's happened in the two years since where a lot of the sort of trends and things that you were talking about and identified seem to have sped up even more? Yeah, yeah. I remember very early in the pandemic, lots of people, the people who were not doing the heroic work of continuing to provide medical care and other essential services, saying, oh, you know, we're going to be shutting doors for a while. I'm going to, I'm going to read War and Peace. I'm going to learn French on Duolingo. I'm going to, uh, you know, all these very ambitious goals. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet in lockdown, or was it King Lear? Exactly. You will have noticed no one read Tolstoy, no one learned French, no one wrote <laughs> King Lear, right? In fact, people Googling, how do I get my brain to work, increased by more than 300%. And I think actually... <laughs> I think actually I I was kind of, uh, maybe this is a bit conceited, but I was unusually well prepared to see why we weren't going to learn French and and, and read Tolstoy because the stuff I had already learned about the effects of stress on people's ability to focus and pay attention. And one person who really helped to unlock this for me was a totally extraordinary person called Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who's the Surgeon General of California, the most senior medical officer in the state and a, a real hero. And Nadine said to me one day, imagine you were walking down the street and you were attacked by a bear out of the blue, and you survived. In the weeks and months that follow, something completely involuntary would happen to your attention. You would find it harder to, say, read a book, do your homework, because a big part of your brain would just be scanning for risk and danger. It'd be like, something came out of the blue and attacked me. Geez, what else is going to come out of the blue and attack me? Mm. The more stressed you are, the more vigilant you become. I thought about that a lot during, during COVID, because you know, we all got attacked by a bear, right? And the bear came back. The bear came back several times, right? (laughs) We were in these unprecedented forms of risk, Uh, not just the risk of the virus, which was obviously very significant, the risk to our futures, the way that our everything we know was upended. I think put all of us or most of us into a state of, if not hypervigilance, vastly increased vigilance. So I think that's, that's one of the key things that happened during COVID. Speaking of the before times, something that's quite interesting about the book is that you mention that 
we don't really have any kind of longitudinal studies of attention. So this is this is something that we all feel, like we can feel that our minds are sort of disintegrating, but there's not a great research base for this as yet. And some of the trends that you talk about, things like light pollution and the hyperacceleration of information transfer, these are things that kind of date back to the Industrial Revolution or even like the Gutenberg press. So I'm wondering, given the kind of time scale on which the book argues our attention has been dissolving, are you positing that there was ever some kind of golden age of focus, like a point at which our brains actually did work properly? And if so, when could we pay attention? <laughs> no, there definitely wasn't a golden age, but I think there's two two ways we can think about the evidence, right? So the best way we could have kind of the gold standard for evidence would be if, say, we could go back 150 years and every year scientists are given random samples of the population the same kind of attention test. And that wasn't done. So that data wasn't gathered. So we don't have the gold standard. But I think we do actually have very good evidence that attention has been getting significantly worse. And the way we can adduce that evidence is you look at subsections of changes that are well documented. So think about, for example, we know that we sleep significantly less than we did in the recent past. There's very good scientific evidence on this. It's not complete uh, unanimity, but there's a broad consensus among the experts that we sleep about 20% less than we did a century ago. So there's good evidence for that. And there's overwhelming scientific evidence that if you cut back on your sleep, your ability to focus and pay attention gets significantly worse, right? And that's true of many factors that have changed. There's very good evidence that switching tasks harms your ability to focus and pay attention. And there's very good evidence the amount of task switching we take part in has hugely accelerated. Mm. So I think given all these trends... We can show in the short to medium term very robustly that these changes harm attention. And B, we can show sociologically that those changes have hugely accelerated. I think it is fair to assume that there has in, that our intuition, the one that you're describing, we all have, or most of us have, is correct and our attention is in fact getting worse. The way I think of it is we're in a race, right? On the one side, we've got all these 12 forces that are harming our ability to focus and pay attention, many of which are hugely accelerating. Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40, right? Mm. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is than Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> now imagine the next crack-like iteration of TikTok in the metaverse, right? So that's one side of the race. On the other side of the race, there's got to be a movement of all of us saying, no, no, that's not a good life. No, you don't get to do this to us. No, we choose a life where, of course, there's some speed and distraction. These are good things to some degree, but where we're not overwhelmed by this. But we've got to fight for it. You don't get what you don't fight for, right? Mm. If we just do nothing, the forces that are raiding our attention will only become more powerful and more sophisticated. But we can take on those forces. They're not gods. And it requires a big shift in psychology, right? Partly, we've got to stop blaming ourselves. Anyone listening, if you can't focus and pay attention, it's not your fault. And most importantly, we need to not only ask for tiny tweaks. You know, we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we could take them back if we want to. Talk to me about some of the ways in which we can take them back. This will sound weird for a moment, but there's a, his, an, a historical analogy in the history of Australia that I think can really help us to think about what we've got to do now. 
I remember when I was a kid, the standard form of petrol in Australia, in Britain, all over the world was leaded petrol. Leaded, yep. And a little bit before my time, it was normal that people used to paint their homes with leaded paint. But by the time you got to the 1970s, it was just undeniable that lead exposure and lead, in fact, full lead poisoning was happening to lots of kids. And it was really harming their brains and their ability to focus and pay attention in particular. Mm. So what happened was a group of ordinary Australian mums, what we used to call housewives, banded together and said, well, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these for-profit companies to screw up our kids' brains? And it's really important to notice what those mums didn't say. They didn't say, so let's ban all petrol. They didn't say, so let's ban all paint. Just like none of us are saying, let's get rid of smartphones, let's get rid of tech, that's not what we want. What they said is, let's get rid of the specific element in the paint and the petrol that is harming our kids' brains so badly. And they fought. They fought and they fought for their children, these mothers. And everyone listening knows they won. Yeah, we're still cleaning up the effects. Completely. But we but but what what think about how much further how far we've come. The Center for the Disease Control, the CDC, has calculated that the average child is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we not banned lead, right? To me, that's a really great example. You've got a group of people who follow the science, discover what's harming our attention and children's attention, and get that out, get that specific component out of the environment, right? Again, the, the lead industry wanted it to be like, oh, are you, you're anti-petrol, right? In the same way that the tech industry wants it to be framed as, oh, uh, it's really, uh, there's very few things people say about my book that irritate me, but, but when people say it's an anti-tech book, I know they haven't read it, right? Mm. It very explicitly, I am passionately in favor of te- the technologies we have. I just don't want them to be designed to maximally hack and invade our attention. And we can deal with that component. I discussed it with lots of people. So I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley with people who designed key aspects of the world in which we currently live. They kept explaining, anyone listening, if you open TikTok, Facebook, Twitter now, those apps start to make money out of you in two ways. The first way is really obvious. You see ads. Okay, no one listening needs me to explain that. Mm. The second way is much more important. Everything you say and do on these apps is scanned and sorted by the artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are. Now, partly that's to sell information about you to advertisers, right? You are not the customer of these products. Famously, you are the product they sell to their real customers, the advertisers. So if you tell your mum that you've just bought some nappies, okay, it figures out you've got a baby, right? Okay, it wants it sells that information to people selling nappies, right? Uh, and much more sophisticated forms. But just as importantly, they are gathering this information to figure out what the weaknesses in your attention are to keep you scrolling. Because every time you pick up your phone and start to scroll, they begin to make money. The longer you scroll, the more money they make. Every time you close the app, their revenue stream disappears. So all of their AI, all of their artificial intelligence, all of their algorithms, all of this genius in Silicon Valley is geared towards one thing, figuring out how do we get you to pick up your phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. Mm. That's it. So in this analogy, the lead in the petrol is the advertising model and the kind of idea that the profit base has to come from like time spent using and eyeballs on screen. Yeah, you got there ahead of it. I had to have this explained to me far more times for me to get this. (laughs) But I remember one person who really helped me to unlock it was a guy called Asa Raskin, who designed a key part of how many websites work. And his dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. And Asa said to me, if you want to know what the lead in the lead paint is in this analogy, it's very simple. What you need to do is ban the current business model. 
you need to say that a business model based on figuring out weaknesses in people's attention in order to hack it and sell it to the highest bidder is just a fundamentally inhuman and immoral business model. And just like we don't allow lead in lead paint, we don't allow it. And I remember him saying that. It sounded so big. I remember saying to him, well, but what would happen the day after we did that? And I opened Facebook. Would it just say, sorry, guys, we've gone fishing? He said, of course not. What would happen is they'd have to move to a different business model. Mm. And everyone listening, or almost everyone, will have an experience of the two alternative business models. One of them is subscription. Okay, everyone knows how Netflix and HBO work. You pay a certain amount, you get access. Or think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had feces in the street. Uh, We got cholera. So we all paid to build the sewers together and we all own the sewers together, right? You own the sewers in the city you're in, I own the sewers in the city I live in. It may be that like we want to own the sewage pipes together, we want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our minds and I would argue for our politics, right? Mm. But whatever alternative business model we adopt, the key thing to understand is all the incentives then change. Suddenly, you're not the product anymore. You're the customer. Suddenly they have to go, well, what does Alex want? Well, it turns out Alex wants to be able to pay attention. Okay, let's design our app not to hack her attention, but to heal her attention. Oh, it turns out Alex feels better when she meets up with people offline and looks into their eyes. Okay, let's design our app to encourage her to do that, not to encourage her to doom scroll and feel like shit, right? The technology to exist that, they could. my friends in Silicon Valley could design those websites in a week. I don't want to be simplistic about this, but the scale of the problem actually works in our favor in that we have a potential constituency of basically everyone except Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, right? Oh, what Um, a wonderful constituency to be a part of. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I am optimistic that if we identify, Dan, what's actually happening and stop blaming ourselves and stop blaming the forces that have stolen our focus, we can really get a lot of traction on dealing with this. In many ways, the attempt to regain our focus feels like it's a productivity manual. Like if we can focus more, we can be more productive. But the thing that stole our focus in the first place is the need to be hyperproductive and do more and more all the time. So if not to kind of improve our productivity, what do we use focus for? Yeah, it's a really profound question. And, you know, our ability to pay attention is our superpower as a species. If we're losing our superpowers as species at the time of the greatest challenges to our species, how do we come together as a society and take on the big challenges that face us from, you know, the climate crisis to the cost of living crisis, to all the things we're facing? A society of people jammed up, interacting through algorithms designed to make them angry, to keep their attention, where we can't listen to each other, where we can't stop and think. That is not a society where we can deal with our, our longer goals. So I would say in a way, we don't quite know the answer to your question because we're so jammed up all the time, right? And in a sense, as we get our focus back, we'll begin to discover what we want to pay attention to. But at the moment, we're so hacked and invaded and jammed up. You can't pay attention. The attention crisis is the crisis we have to solve before we solve any other crisis. Thank you so much, Johan. Oh, I really enjoyed this, Alex. Michael, we're at the end of the show. It's time for Top of the List. What do you have for me this week? 
I feel like such a wanker recommending this, but my top of the list is actually an album called Baby We're Ascending um, by an artist called Hi. That's very on brand for you. Who is an electronic producer from um, from Australia, now based in London. Um, and The Guardian review, it was reviewed by us um, last weekend, says that it contains full of moments that are aqueous, washing over you with the bracing crispness of early morning tides. And I'm not someone who listens to, like, just electronic music just casually, but I think this has really changed my mind. Like, it really feels like the perfect album to wake up to. It really gets you ready for the day in truly shocking dance floor style. Alex, what is your top of the list? Mine is also about a scent. To the moon, it is For All Mankind, which is an Apple TV show. The third season premieres on June 9th. And for my money, it's the best sci-fi show out there at the moment. It's basically premised on an alternative history where Russia beats America to the moon and then the space race never ends. It's by Battlestar Galactica creator Ronald D. Moore, and I'm convinced it's secretly a prequel to Battlestar Galactica. The first season is okay, The second season was absolutely incredible and I'm so excited for where they're taking it next. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, you should probably subscribe to this show. It's really easy. You're already listening to it. Just hit follow on that podcast player. And you can scream back at us across the board by leaving us a review. This show is produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Coding, who also handcrafted the music. Our executive producers are Steph Harmon and Miles Martignoni. See you next week. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.